Hey, we are in Sefer Malachim Aleph Perik Yud Pasuk Yud Dalit Vayehi Mishkal Hazahav Asher Baal Before that, there's just an interesting footnote from the Shear last time that it, you're going to find fascinating, and that is we recall there was a parish that Shlomo and the Queen of Sheba had some sort of a relationship. One measure says it resulted in Nebuchadnezzar, who eventually destroyed the first base Hamikdash. Another measure said that she married a son of Shlomo and went back to Sheba with him, and they live happily ever after. This becomes more than an academic exercise as late as the 1950s and 1960s and even into the 70s, if you remember or if you've learned that there was under Israel's right of return a group in Ethiopia that applied, that claimed they had the right of return, no questions asked, to settle in Israel from Ethiopia. Uh, They were called falashes, which is really a pejorative term, but they had always called themselves by a Hebrew name. They had traditions that went back hundreds, thousands of years that were similar in certain respects to Jews, and they asked, petitioned the government to return to Israel. There was, as you would guess, a lot of resistance to this, but one of their claims was that they are descendants of Shlomo and the Queen of Sheba. And it went through a lot of torturous Knesset debate, as well as Rabbanim and Poskim weighing in, with most saying, no, they are not descendants of Shlomo and and, um, Queen of Sheba. It's a very flimsy nexus. And that no, they want to. They have to apply to immigration as regular people. They would have to convert if they wanted to be Jews. And if they converted, they would have to go through either a um, symbolic circumcision or even an actual circumcision. Interestingly enough, the Sephardic chief rabbi, Ravavaja Yosef, carried the day for the Ethiopians with his psak that while they may not be descendants of Shlomo and the Queen of Sheba, in his belief they are the lost tribe of Dun. The tribe of Dun had either fled there when the Malchus broke up, as we're going to see. Some say, there's a message that some say even as far back as the Exodus in the desert, a lot of them turned south instead of continuing north to Eretz Yisrael. And so through Abacha Yosef, a great many Ethiopian Jews got out and were accepted under the right of return. And of course, later we see that there were airlifts that got them out when they were endangered uh, as late as 1990. Well, but what was the connection to uh, like Jewish practice? They had, did they have the Torah? When, what, what they yeah, it looked like they had the Sefer Torah, that you know, the written Torah. They knew nothing uh, or very little of the oral law, of, you know, etc., which would stand to reason. But they had some very strange uh, minhagim. 
that even though they didn't know why, but they would light candles on Shabbos, they would do other things, they would observe uh, certain ceremonial things. There was definitely a Jewish connection, and they felt, they thought of themselves as Jews. Um, so it still goes on today. It's a very controversial topic, but as we see, that here it comes straight from here, you think thousands of years later, they're still arguing did, this. Did, did, did the Israeli uh, government or the, the, uh, the Rabbanim, did they make them convert or did they allow them to be Jews? Under Rabbanim, no. They have to a good many came in and did not have to convert. And they did not have to, it's a fascinating story and it's, it's still a work in progress. Um, so, back to our parrot, Pasuk Yudalit. And Pasuk Yudalit at the end of the parrot just shows the sheer opulence, the grandiose style of Shlomo in his palace, in his malchus, etc. And remember, again, bear in mind that the Kaddish Baruch who promised him this, when he granted him the wisdom, he granted him the wealth as well, unparalleled wealth, and this is what it certainly looks like. So, the amount of gold that Shlomo would get in one year would be 666 kikar zahav. A kikar zahav is a measure of gold, like a dinar. Um, we have had this in the sense that Hiram gives him 120, the Queen of Sheba gives him 120, and he collects, I think, another 240, which leaves him short. But they're saying that that's, we got this already, and the Mephoshim saying, no, this isn't year to year. This is just a one-shot deal here in this Pasuk. He gets this every single year. How does he get it? Levadmi Anshei HaTarim. This is a sign. From that he collects from Anshei HaTarim would be the salespeople, merchants, businessmen, Umasacher HaRochlin, spice merchants, all the kings in the region, Upachos HaOretz, the uh, regional heads of the land. In other words, everyone paid him tribute. While he didn't impose direct taxes, there were taxes, for example, on franchises that he left, sales that he left. It was a constant, constant infusion of money, of wealth. And what he does is he makes 200 shields of the finest gold, so that would be the kind of shield you wrap around your body. Soldiers would wrap around on three sides. Um, in uh, each shield. And that um, the truth is shields were made out of steel and metals for protection. This gold is a much thinner thing, so we would have to put more gold in each shield. And they question, of course, the utilitarian purposes of these shields. The next one is Shoshmeos Maginim Zahab. These are the hand shields that he would make. Shachut Shloshes Manim, with again, uh, three mana of gold. Yalel Hamagenu Echas, that they held in their hands to defend them. But 
they didn't defend him. They were more ornamentation than functional. Moreover, by Yitnaim HaMelech Beis Yar Halvonon. They were stored in Beis Halvonon. That we remember is the summer palace that Shlomo builds for himself in Yerushalayim. Again, a very lavish enterprise. But apparently, they were designed, they're non-utilitarian. The shields of gold would be just... Um, not usable, certainly as hand shields, they were decorative. Now comes to his crowning uh, grandiosity of wealth. Vayas HaMelech Kisei Shein Gadol Mufaz. He designs a throne, a throne made out of ivory, which I, I doubt that there was, you know, ivory in Israel. This had to be imported from Africa made out of ivory, but overlaid with gold, this throne. There were six steps up to the throne. Some say the throne had three sets of stairs, so triple this. Um, Above him was this like a cupola, a round thing, again, made in gold that extended over his throne. And there were these armrests on the side of his throne, these massive armrests where he sat. With two lions, not, I believe, not real lions, but they were... Um, Statues of lions on each side. Ushneme saw Arayim, 12 uh, lions standing from Alshesh Hamalos Mizeh, Umizeh. There were six lions on the stairs, if you remember the six on one side, six on the other, 12 all total. Below Nasekain Lachomim Lachos. Moreover, there are Mepharshim, many, many Mepharshim on this. Of course, first the symbolism, that this is where he judged. Uh, so the six steps stand for the Sidre Mishnah, others the 12 for the 12 tribes. He had a gold throne on his right for the head of the Sanhedrin, a gold throne on his right for the um, one for the Nasi, one for the assistant, I'm sorry, for the Kohen Gadol, and one for the assistant Kohen Gadol. And out there in front of him, he had 70 magnificent thrones for those Dayanim, for the Sanhedrin that were to judge each case. Moreover, the throne was like magical in, in its, the only word for it is contraptions. They would have things where you could activate mechanically the lions and the animals and the eagles where they were. And that what would happen, said one of the Midrashim, is that let's say a litigant lied. The lions would start roaring as if on cue. The eagles would start screaming so that no one dared lie because they were terrified there. And that that's how he would pursue the justice um, Animals would help support him get up. They had certain mechanical sophistication that we don't even understand that would move him up the stairs, down the stairs. It was truly, you know, an incredible contraption, for want of a better word. And as it says, there was nothing like this in any other kingdom. 
Naturally, it became the envy of every other king. Legend, the Medrash has it, that um, Nebuchadnezzar captured it and took it back. Some say it was taken to Egypt. Some say it was taken to Rome, but it was never found. And one fascinating um, Medrash says that Ahasuerus, who ruled Persia and ruled 127 kingdoms, wanted one exactly like it, was obsessed with having the exact throne made for him. Problem was, Ahasuerus ruled from a different, did not rule from Shushan at the time. It turns out the only craftsman in his entire empire who could craft a facsimile of that throne lived in Shushan. So what he did, and that's why they call him a madman, moved his entire capital to Shushan. And it is taken as sort of hashkacha uh, pratis of the Kaddish Baruch that he moves to Shushan, and who is in Shushan? Mordechai and Esther. In other words, the Kaddish Baruch Hu has sent the refuah before the makkah, the cure before the illness, and so everything is in place because he's in Shushan, because he wants to have those craftsmen design that same throne. So we see it was a magnificent throne, but that's not the end. It was all gold. Every utensil he had was gold. Not nechoshes or brass or copper, but or silver, gold. And everything in that summer palace was gold. Zahov Sogur, which is the finest gold. Ein kesef lo shlomo lemauma, which literally means silver in the days of Shlomo was nothing. It was, would be like our copper pennies. It wasn't even valid currency. In other words, so plentiful was the gold and the riches. And this applied, is spread out to the nation. The nation was so wealthy that silver was like considered very lowly of a commodity and certainly of a currency. It's changed soon as we're going to see. Remember that mercantile um, conglomerate venture that he made with Hiram of Tyre, where Hiram ruled the Mediterranean, he ruled the Gulf states, etc. And it Tarshish, Tarshish is considered, also could be a large boat of mercantile value, but it's also considered Tarshish is what we would call today, the Romans called it Carthage. Um, it had a different name under Shlomo, but it was a very prominent port that was midway between the Mediterranean, between the eastern end and the western end of the Mediterranean, and it was a That's where Yonah was going, right? What? Uh, uh, that's where Yonah was going, Tarshish, isn't it? Yonah. Yes. So that's, yes. that would be like Tripoli in, Lib- in uh, Tunisia or Libya. Tunis, you're right. That's where it was. Tunis. Um, right. Tarshish is considered Tunis. And therefore, um, what it did was Tarshish would bring boats back. It would take three years to journey back every year, every three years. No, say it's Zahab, but Kesef, gold and silver, Shahabanim, Bakokim, Batukim. Also, with it, wild animals, peacocks, 
monkeys. And even this, the kufim and the tikkoyim, so a lot of Mephoshim say this was really overkill because it was brought for the sport of the people, the monkeys, the peacocks. And again, you see here the signs of the eventual downfall, which, as we're going to see, is not far away. He, it far exceeds every other king in terms of wisdom and in terms of osher, wealth. And that's what he was promised. Everyone wants to come and visit Shlomo. Some to just look at him. Some to consult with him. That the Kaddish Baruch granted him. They sought counsel. They sought advice. They came just to see each one brings a gift, everything, gold, silver, spices, armaments, susim, horses, each year. So that accounts, the annual gross income is just massive. By Yesaf Shlomo Rechev Uprashim, he gathers to him sus, horses and chariots. By Hilo Elif Arbarmeos Rechev, he has 1,400 chariots. Ushnemos are Elif Prashim, different kinds of chariots. By Hinochim Ba'are Harechev Bim Hamelef Yushalayim. He can't even store them in Yushalayim. There are so many, and the horses. He puts them in um, specially designed cities, or in storage cities, and some in Yerushalayim. He uses, now finally we see silver at first, Loma Uma. Now it's saying that he used them as stones to pay Yerushalayim. In other words, they acquire a value. The cedars of Lebanon, those giant, valuable trees, are like sycamore trees. They are so multiple and so common. In other words, the wealth is vast, you get the point, etc. Fascinating concept now. We know from the Torah, we're going to see it again, a king could not acquire horses or too many horses. The reason was a fear of that they would return the nation to Egypt because Egypt, as we know, was the greatest source of luxury and fine horses in the world. And you didn't want the king going back there. You didn't want Jews going back there. Nonetheless, he acquires them from Egypt. And what they're telling us, Shlomo developed, literally, a cartel where he had the exclusive rights to all exports of all the horses in Egypt. In other words, you couldn't get a license to export a horse without Shlomo's syndicate. Moreover, what he did was buy wholesale and then sell retail to the other kings and to other nations, etc. He controlled the horse trade of Egypt. Um, 
They institute a mikveh b'mechir, batale batetze merkava mimitzrayim b'sheish meyos kesef. He buys a gorgeous chariot for 600 kesef, b'sus v'chamishim u'meya, and horses for each one chamishim u'meya, that's 150. V'chein l'chol malchei hachitim. Now you see, he's giving it out, distributing to malchei hachitim, he is the supplier of fine horses. Some of Borshim say he extends that franchise to the linens of Egypt. In other words, you couldn't export linens or cotton, which were the best in the world, without Shlomo. So we see what a tremendous, grandiose sense of wealth there was. But don't get comfortable with this. It is all about to collapse, massively collapse, 8.45 a.m. tomorrow. Ad Khan.